Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to the club that you didn't want to join. With a voice of red disease and this jingle doesn't rhyme. NordPod, NordPod, NordPod. My name is Matthew Zachary, and welcome to NordPod, right here on the Offscript Media Network. Now, I've been advocating on behalf of cancer and rare disease patients for over 20 years. Why? Because I am one. NordPod is the official podcast of the National Organization for Rare Disorders. And a quick reminder before we get started, that if you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts because it helps other listeners like you discover the show. Now, let's get started. Hello, friends. Welcome back to NordPod, the voice of rare disease. On the show today, you're in for a treat. Sarah Pennington is a chronic illness advocate, the USA National Miss Independence State, a motivational speaker, and she's been dealing with a diagnosis called trichotillomania for over 12 years. This is a disorder that involves recurrent, irresistible urges to pull out body hair, and it's estimated that almost 330,000 children between the ages of 11 and 13 experience this every year. At a time in your life of maturity and pubescence and adolescence that you're supposed to be growing and taking 10 steps forward every day, on top of the fact that it's hard enough to be a preteen or a teenager in general, especially in the 2020s, the last thing you need dragging you down is a physical condition that's invisible and puts you in a place of judgment and stigma, depression, anxiety, fear, and uncertainty. Sarah decided to do something about that by taking ownership of her condition after many years of depression and suicidal thoughts and months in a residential treatment program. And one day she decided to take off her wig and take on a new challenge, beauty pageants. And 11 years later, she joins me here today to share her story, her inspirations, her motivations, and how she's paying it forward to help others like her become empowered, educated, inspired, and connected to their community. Enjoy the show. Hello, Sarah. Hello, I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. We are thrilled to have you, no doubt. My first question to you is, how many times have you been told, but you look great? Oh yeah, I'd be a billionaire if I got a penny kind of thing. Yep, I figured as much. And how long did it take you to learn all the syllables of trichotillomania? That was a few years, and we are still in a spot where I am spelling it and uh, pronouncing it for doctors, so that's fun. I actually had to type it into uh, like a Google Translate and have it speak it to me. 
Sounds about right. Yeah. It's, and then, you know, I type it in a word document and it says, you spelled that wrong. And I triple checked. I'm like, no, it's, it's spelled right. It's correct. <laughs> I mean, this it's very onomatopoetic, right? It's just like, it, it kind of sounds like what it is. Most definitely. So I have twins. They just turned 12. So when I read your story about this manifesting at 11, and then I did my stalking of this condition that it typically affects preteens, I'm like, should I be waiting for the shoe to drop? Is this something that we would want to be mindful of? I mean, talk to me as a parent of someone who was your age. Yeah. So I developed trichotillomania when I was 11 years old. And it was something that as an 11 year old, it was far bigger of a deal for my mom than it was for me. Because for me at that point in my life, it was just kind of a for lack of a better word, a habit that I was doing. But for my mom, she was looking at it as, oh my gosh, my baby girl is losing her hair. What do I do? How can I help? And, you know, when I speak to parents a lot of times, especially parents who are really new to a condition or fearful the child will get this condition because they have it, something like that is your child is their own person and they're going to go through this journey if they develop this condition and you need to be respectful of how they want to handle the condition. So if they want to pursue therapy or if they want to use fidget toys or interventions to help cope with this condition, fantastic, support them in that. And if they say they don't want that, you have to let them be okay with that and sit with that. And I know that's very scary and very uncomfortable for parents because they want to do everything possible to help their child. But at the end of the day, if you're not ready to receive mental help, it's not going to help. I can only imagine if this was happening in the 80s, the therapy was like, stop doing that already. Oh, yeah. And it's funny because people still kind of that's their first reaction is why don't you just stop? And I come back at that with, you know, if I could stop, I would. Don't don't you think I would stop this condition if I had the mental capabilities to do that? But it's something in my brain, the way it's wired or whatever, that I have this condition and it happens and it's something that I can't really control. So telling me to stop is is a mute point. It just doesn't help. It's like, yeah, just lose weight, fatty. Like, <laughs> it's like You can't just do it. No, you can't. So uh, is it wrong that this condition falls under the OCD umbrella? Because it really is semi-compulsive, but it's not. Yeah, so the DSM-5, I believe, categorizes it as like OCD-like behavior. It's not a direct offshoot of OCD, although there's a lot of people who have the comorbidity of OCD. It's actually considered a BFRB, which is a body-focused repetitive behavior. That's its direct umbrella. So, all right, so you're 11, this behavior starts, I mean, you're 11, do you remember being 11 first and foremost? And... Was there any particular moment where you realized I'm doing this? It's interesting because I think back to being 11, I was in fifth grade at the time. And I remember there were points where I would be pulling out my eyebrows, my eyelashes, and I would be collecting them on my desk. And it was kind of a game of like, how big can I make this pile? Which looking back is a, uh, it's, it's a really detrimental thing in a way. But at the time I was like, okay, just a very basic. How can I big, can I make this hair pile? But that was the thing that really triggered getting my diagnosis because my mom and my fifth grade teacher both were noticing A, the behavior and B, the lack of hair on my face. 
And they said, oh my gosh, something is wrong. Uh, this is not what we typically see in 11-year-old girls. I mean, alopecia recently made the news because of the Oscars. We don't have to go into that drama there. But was that an initial thought that you might have a condition where your hair was falling out on its own? For me, it never crossed my mind, but I'm sure my mom had that thought. And it, you again, it goes back to the parent panic mode, which I see so very often. And I've seen it in my mom of, good gosh, what is happening? What do I do? How can I help? How can I stop it? Were you misdiagnosed or did like a pediatrician know right away this was something specific? Truthfully, Google. <laughs> wow. And, you know, I say that knowing that is a very terrible thing to Google symptoms, but I am very blessed that my mom actually did go to Google and said, you know, my mom, my daughter's pulling out her hair. And because she did that, she was able to find out that this was a condition. This wasn't just a one off. I'm the only person in the world. And that blessed me in the way that I knew I wasn't alone, whereas a lot of people who have trichotillomania spend years and years thinking they're literally the only person on this earth doing it. When just a simple Google search will come up trichotillomania, there's not a ton of resources, but there's enough to know that it's not a one-off condition. Yeah, we're going to talk about isolation and your nonprofit efforts on the second half of the show. I've interviewed a lot of young men and young women who have been through the ringer with chronic diseases and conditions and sometimes cancer. And I'm finding a trend. And, and that is, do you feel like having to sort of endure this and grow with this and mature with this has accelerated your own maturity? 100%. Well, let's talk about that. Absolutely. I think about it a lot because people will often ask the arbitrary question of, if you could go back and tell your younger self one thing, what would you tell them? And I'm really hesitant to answer that because if I told my younger self something, it would have altered my path. And yes, maybe it would have changed things by making things easier, but also the struggles that I went through of trying to understand this condition and overcome it led me to the advocacy work that I'm doing today. And without that journey, I wouldn't have that passion and that fire, and I wouldn't be the same Sarah that I am today. And I kind of like who I am. So in a way, I'm kind of thankful that I had to go through that journey, as difficult as it was. Yeah, there's a, a bizarrely dark statement in the cancer world, which is, it's a gift that I wouldn't want to give anyone. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense to me. And I think that people with BFRBs, oftentimes, once they accept it, it's a part of them and they don't want to necessarily get rid of that. They wouldn't say, oh, I want my kids to have BFRBs because that's a terrifying thing because it's very difficult to go through. But at the same time, it made you who you are today. Right. Again, I asked that question because a young man I recently had on my other my other show had a rare condition in high school and it clearly matured him. And he didn't feel like he could relate to his friends anymore who just wanted to do goop all stupid shit that you're supposed to do when you're in high school. Oh, yeah. And... I 100% agree with that. I started becoming open about my condition when I was 16. By the time I graduated high school at 18, I pretty much had lost all of my friends. And, you know, if I talk to them, they might say, oh, we grew apart or whatever. But I think it's a huge coincidence. And it, it's not a coincidence, honestly, in my opinion, that I lost all of them when I started becoming open and be because I had matured in a way that they couldn't understand and they couldn't relate to. And they were, it was easier for them to relate to people who had those insecurities the way that I no longer dealt with. 
There's another saying. I mean, I come from oncology because I had cancer 26 years ago, but there's a line, something like, it's not really about what you have all the time. It's what you have in common. And what you're talking about resonates with me personally because when I was sick, again, in the 90s, cancer was like contagious and all these crazy, ridiculous theories that no one knew anything about. The whisper campaigns, God forbid you have it, you poor thing, you're dying right away. And I lost friends that I thought were my friends. So I'm hearing this, I'm feeling this, and it is completely in sync with this commonality when things that are not really supposed to happen to you really sift the flower and tell you who's there for you. Absolutely. And you know, today, one of my best friends has trick, and that's not a coincidence at all. Really? Mm-hmm. It's actually a really interesting story because one of the things I did when I was 13, my mom said to me, there's this conference for people who have this condition and it's really close by, so we're going. And at the time at 13, I was very, very insecure about the condition, didn't want to talk about it. None of my close friends knew. I hit it as hard as I could, but my mom said, we're going to this conference and I didn't have a choice. So when I went to the conference, I ended up really enjoying it and I went back year after year. So fast forward to when I'm going to colleges and college campuses and, you know, the selection process in high school, all that fun stuff. I was at an interview at one of the colleges and there was another girl there and I noticed her pulling out her hair. And at that point I had gotten really bold and so I kind of went up to her and I was like, do you know what trichotillomania is? Because that's my first, like, nobody else is going to know what I'm talking about. And if she doesn't, then, okay, we don't have to talk about it anymore. But if she does, she'll know what I'm talking about and we can bond over that. And she goes, oh, yeah, you're the one who wore that tiara at the conference last year. And I was like, what? And it turns out she had been at the conference the year before and I had been at the conference as well, representing my pageant title that I had. And she remembered that. And so we just started talking at that college interview. We ended up going to the same college and now we're best friends. That is extraordinary. That is like, again, the universe works in mysterious ways. And here you are finding a colleague, a peer, someone who would never judge you, who understands what you're going through and and was kind of like there when you didn't even know it. Exactly. It's so incredible. And if I hadn't lost, you know, those friends from high school, I don't know that I would have gotten as close to this girl as I am. Well, the power, again, the power of peer-to-peer support cannot be understated. Absolutely. I do want to point out to the listeners, I did more, I mean, this is math, like on the fly, that around 1.1% of preteens between 10 and 13 might be affected by this condition, which in the U.S., again, this is math on the fly, is about 330,000 children. So that's a lot per year who could be affected by this. My question, of course, there's (laughs) supposed to be a question there, is outside of this young woman who's now your best friend, did you seek or was there even awareness of like a Facebook group for parents or anything on social media for other women or young men affected with this condition? So following that first time that I went to the conference, I ended up being on a teens with trick group is what it was called on Facebook and predominantly women, just because I think it's more talked about condition in women, but Mm -hmm. there's a lot of young girls in the group and 
they shared their experiences. And that was the first time I was really bonding with people who understood what I was going through. Nowadays, Facebook, I wouldn't say is the primary anymore. It's, it's kind of shifted to being more of a uh, millennials thing than a Gen Z thing. But online support, I would say is prevalent. It's just shifted its form. Yeah, we can we can have a whole other show about Facebook. I left Facebook a while ago just because like, A, my parents were on it. And I don't want to be on this. But then again, I realized like the next generation is going to better platforms that make more sense for what they need to use. And again, we'll get to all of this on the second half of the show. But just wrapping up really quick right here with digging into a little more of this conference you've mentioned before, how were you made aware of it? What was it like to go there for the first time? Were you or your parents terrified? Talk to us about your emotional state. Absolutely. So my mom found it. And this was at a point where I had altered from just pulling out my eyebrows, and my eyelashes to pulling out my head hair. And not only was that a different form of pulling, it was one that took a much more emotional toll on me. I went from not really caring so much about my condition to being petrified that people would find out because it showed that I could be ugly in the eyes of my peers. Is that how I viewed it at least? Because I had bald patches on my head. And so I hit it as hard as I could. I wore wigs, I wore hats, I wore headbands. And because it was taking such a strong emotional toll, my mom really dove into how can I help my daughter? And so she found this conference, we went to it. And it was very shocking for both of us because there were people there who were walking around bald and proud and okay with it. And for the first time, it became very clear that there was a very strong possibility I would be living with this condition for the rest of my life. And I vividly remember crying in the hotel room because that scared me. Truthfully, it honestly scared me. But through that conference, I was able to begin to understand what this condition was fully, what it could mean for me in the future. And although at the time that was scary, that kind of got me into a mindset that later when I really accepted that this was an okay condition to have for the long term, it helped me accept that to know that there were other people who accepted that and love themselves unconditionally and that maybe I could get to that place too. We'll be right back with Sarah Pennington. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
All right, we're back with Sarah Pennington. Again, my first question for you is the obvious. How many people ask you, do you have cancer? I get it a lot. And I definitely remember being shocked the first time I get the question. But now it's to the point where people are not even asking the question. They're jumping to the assumption that I have cancer. And they're asking, oh, how's your treatment going? Or things that lead me to believe that they are indicating I have cancer without actually saying it. That's awesome, horrible, and very intrusive. It's it's shocking. It is crazy to me what people will say to you. Yeah, unprompted nonetheless, too. Oh, yeah. Complete strangers, usually at a gas station, that have absolutely no business in talking to me about my medical practices. So for this particular section of the show I call Gen X Therapy, you're going to educate me as a 48-year-old guy raised in the 80s when Get Over It was therapy. Mental health is all the rage, but mental health has kind of always been the umbrella above everything that's happening to us that we can and can't control. I do want to focus specifically on part of your dark times. You wrote about being suicidal. This really, really hits you. It's a time in your life when you're supposed to be taking 10 steps forward every day and you're not. It's difficult being a teenager It is 10 times more difficult being a teenager and going through condition, especially under known condition, not well-known condition, rare condition, however you want to phrase it. For me, by the time I hit 16, I was struggling. I was having issues with friends. I was struggling more importantly with myself. I didn't believe In myself, I felt ugly. I felt like I needed to hide. I felt like I wasn't worthy of being in this world. And I genuinely hit a point where I felt like there would not be a time where I could live without battling daily suicidal ideation. I never got to the point where I actually attempted suicide, but I did have thoughts every night like, is this going to be the last night of being on earth? Because I just didn't feel like I was worthy and I had such debilitating depression and debilitating anxiety. 16 was the time that you're supposed to be getting your driver's license and big things are supposed to be happening. And instead, I was going to class less and less. I actually dropped out of some of my extracurriculars because I couldn't handle it. I was in bed for extended periods of time. And that's when I hit the lowest low. But I recognized that and I, I didn't want to be stuck there anymore. And so the outpatient therapy that I've been going to for years, we stepped it up like three times a week and it still wasn't working. And that's when I said, you know, hey, mom, remember that time my psychiatrist mentioned that residential treatment program? Maybe we should actually consider that. And for the listeners, this is almost like a rehab retreat in different form, correct? In a way, yeah. I took an interesting route with it because I was very skinny. I never struggled with an eating disorder, but my BMI did not meet the hospital's criteria. And generally speaking, the way the program I was supposed to be in worked was you would wait several months on a waiting list to get in. Because of my BMI, I ended up being placed in an inpatient eating disorder unit. Now, I was very adamant. I said, you know, I don't belong in this unit. This is not correct. But the one thing it did get me was got me into that hospital immediately. They had an opening. And so when they actually figured out I didn't have an eating disorder and put me in the right unit, I 
kind of accelerated that waiting list process, which then meant I spent three months working with group therapy, individual therapy, psychiatrists, and living in a hospital with about 10 other teens going through very similar conditions. That's incredible, though. It's, it's again, like the thing you would never expect to need. You made a conscious decision that this is something you want to take advantage of at an incredibly vulnerable age and an incredibly vulnerable state of mind. Do you underestimate the gravity of that capacity within you to do that? I'm sort of shocked it happens, quite frankly. I definitely went into it very naive, though. I had a one-track mind at that point. It was, you know, cure my trick was still my mindset when I went into the hospital. The hospital had a very different (laughs) idea of how they wanted to approach it, though. I quickly learned that instead of curing it, they wanted me to get comfortable with myself and with my trick and with my baldness. And as much as I totally despised them at that point for doing that, that push that they instilled in me to get to that point is why I am as open as I am today. Which leads us to this, you know, we'd say like a gestalt moment or an aha moment where you realize I'm going to own this. I'm me. I'm doing it this way. Take me or leave me. And, you know, rhetorically speaking, you you threw your wig on the ground, you stood up and you said, love me, I'm going to love myself, I don't care what you think, which got you into, you know, the, the framework for how you are represented today as a pageant queen. Yeah, it's really crazy to think about what has happened in five, six years, seven years, I don't know, 2015, so seven years. And the what happened in the hospital was, you know, they said, you need to take off your hat because at that point I was wearing hats to hide my baldness. And I was like, great, don't really want to do that. So after weeks and weeks of negotiation, I finally got to the point and I said, OK, I'll, I'll do it for 60 seconds while nobody's watching me and everyone else is doing their own thing. And in that 60 seconds, you know, my anxiety went to the roof But then it came back down because the world didn't implode and nobody burst into flames and I didn't die. And then the next step after conquering, taking off my hat in the safety net of the hospital was taking off my hat in the unfiltered world of the public. So we actually went to a movie theater and I remember vividly approaching the person to order my ticket, which social anxiety on its own was like, oh, this is a terrifying experience, but social anxiety plus being hatless petrifying. So I go up and the lady's like, oh my gosh, I love your Harry Potter shirt. (laughs) Okay. And so we get into this conversation about Harry Potter and I walk away like she didn't say one thing about my hair. And I realized that I had such, I made such a big deal about this hair loss when people didn't really care. And that was that turning point. So when I got out of the hospital, I I said, you know what, I'm going to finally come out to my friends, my family. I want to show them what I've been through the past several years. Cause you know, I'm sure people noticed that my hair would change ever so slightly or I'd wear hats or things like that, but they didn't know why. And so I wanted an explanation, but I wanted a good explanation. And for me, that came in the form of a video because words weren't enough to see physical hair loss, I think is the best way to understand it. And so I created a video that showed the timeline, the pictures, the bald patches. I said, this is what I had. This is me. This is trichotillomania. And 
I got so many positive comments. I was shocked. I was totally prepared for people to be like, oh, this is disgusting or gross or whatever. And everyone's like, this is great. This is incredible. I had people messaging me saying I have X condition or I have Y condition. And I'm really happy to see someone being brave enough to speak about it. And that really launched me into this world of, wow, if someone's brave enough to step up and share their stories, it tends to inspire other people to be comfortable in their skin, even if they're not comfortable enough to share their stories. And that pushed me onto that advocacy path that got me to today. I mean, this gives me a sort of a cockeyed optimist perspective on history as a teacher. And perhaps it was the fact that we are a more evolved society than we were in the 90s and even to the 2000s, where there's an acceptance now, and less people will go, ew, and more people will go, oh my God, you're so empowered, I'm inspired, I've got crap too. Yeah, it's certainly a reaction I wasn't expecting, given what I had seen in the past, heard from people in the past, but I'm glad we're getting to that point where people are finally able to recognize it in a positive outlook rather than that negative historical perspective, because I think it's very powerful when people come out and say, here's my big secret, but I'm tired of hiding it. And I, I love celebrating people when they do that rather than looking down on them, because why do we feel this need to put down others. I want to uplift everyone and tell them that they're the most beautiful and important person in the world. I don't, even if I don't know you, I'd be happy to uplift you because I know you have potential. Well, it's kind of a, a better dopamine hit to receive positive validation and acceptance and tolerance than allow your illness to provide that for you instead. Exactly. So what are some of the awards you've won? I mean, there's a list of things. What are you, I, it's like picking your favorite child, but you've won so many things. Any one particular achievement stand out? Just one. <laughs> I think uh, I'll pick two. So there's one that's not pageant related. And that was when I was awarded a full ride to um, college. When I was in high school, when I was in the residential program, I had to switch my schooling. I didn't even know if I would have to repeat the 10th grade. I had to go to took calculus online while in a psychiatric hospital, uh, which was really, really difficult. So when I went to apply for scholarships, I knew I was very strong in things academically, but I wasn't that standard taking four APs, 4.0, you know, perfect, whatever we've created that tends to send people to Harvard. I ended up getting a full ride, not because my academics were the most polished or stellar. They were really, really good, but they weren't 100%. But because I was so passionate about volunteering and advocating for mental health, and for me, that was a huge change to think about, you know, it's not just about grades anymore. What makes people drawn to you is what your passions are, what your advocacy work is, what you're giving back to society rather than just being able to fill in the correct bubbles on a form. And that was an incredibly powerful moment for me. The other thing that I'm really excited about is a pageant award. And I am two years in a row, I've been named the USA National Miss Role Model for the USA National Miss Scholarship Organization on the national level for the Miss Contestants, which has gotten me a scholarship both years. But 
that title is so incredible. It's even better to me than winning the national title because I want to be a role model in every aspect of my life. It's not about looking the most glam or getting up on stage and strutting my stuff to appease judges. It's about making a difference and using a crown and a sash to inspire change in the world because those are like a microphone. And if you use them correctly, it can be very powerful. So I'm like nodding my head on the radio. You can't tell. If you were in the room, I'd be like, you know, like your parent, like I'm in Yiddish, we say kveling, like you're just excited with joy for someone and how they've taken back their life and used, I hate the cat poster, lemons for lemonade, Great, but you're using like bad things happen to good people, but your platform is now amplifying all the good things that you want in the world because, A, no one should have to suffer the way you did. But now you have the capacity to truly influence others just like you. Yeah, I think I need a shirt that says I don't want anyone to suffer the way I did. Just the amount of times that I've said that. But it's so true. I've seen firsthand, you know, even when I was in the psychiatric hospital, the way people suffered and the way people went through things and then the way the media portrayed what they were going through so incorrectly I wanted to change that. I said, you know what? No, I feel that we need to be heard. We need to be seen. And people deserve to be validated for their experiences. So in the theme of let's make trichotillomania suck less, I want to thank Sarah Pennington for coming here on NordPod, chronic illness advocate, motivational speaker. I think beauty queen undermines the value that you brought to this planet with your activism. You're on Instagram at Sarah underscore M underscore Penn. Any other websites or URLs you'd like the listeners to learn more about you at? If you want to follow my journey to nationals, uh, you can find me on Instagram as well at UNM Independent State. And that is my pageant title holder Instagram where you'll find a lot of pictures of crowns, queens, and also a lot of facts about disability. All right. We will put links to those Instagram accounts in the episode description. Sarah. I'm inspired. Our listeners are inspired. You are an extraordinary example of activism and advocacy. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. That's all for now. If you like this show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Tell us your rare disease story in your own voice by leaving a message for us at 855-AUDIO-66, and we might just use it in a future show. NordPod is a product of the National Organization for Rare Disorders and Offscript Health. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary, Leslie Nordstrom, and Andrew McDowell. Our senior producer is Valerie Mockin. NordPod is recorded by Matthew Zachary and mixed and edited by Kyle Moore. Our theme music is by the Salvatones. Learn more about the music of the Salvatones at salvatones.org. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscriptnot.com. That's media at offscript.com. Or visit us on the web at offscript.com. For more information about Nord, visit nordpod.org. <laughs>